and welcome to Under the Grid, the podcast exploring the history of Milton Keynes from the collections team at Milton Keynes Museum. We delve deep and not so deep into time to tell you some of our favourite things about the area and share our discoveries from working at the museum. I'm Catherine, I'm the archivist. I'm Sarah, I'm the collections officer. And I'm Tabitha, I'm the archaeology curator and collections conservator. Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome back. Um, Today we're going to do something a bit different. Uh, We thought we would kind of give you a little introduction into who we are at the museum and what we do. Um, So who wants to go first? (laughs) (laughs) I can go first. I think I can remember who I am and what I do. Um, So I'm Sarah, I'm the collections officer, and I deal with all of the social history side of the collection. Um, I oversee items coming in and then if we dispose of anything, oversee that process. Um, And I'm trying to create an inventory of our entire collection. It's a long job, isn't it? It's a long job. I tend to think in terms of five and ten years rather than months. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. Um, I'm Tabitha. I'm the archaeology curator and collections conservator. Uh, which is a very long title for what I do, which is fixing things and then cataloguing very old things. Well, basically, we get all of the archaeology that's been excavated in Milton Keynes, which needs to be catalogued, databased and identified. And then the conservation side of things is things that are corroding or broken, uh, need to be repaired in an ethical way. And that is what I do. Is it just ancient things? No, the conservation is anything in the museum. However, the archaeology is normally pretty old things, though we do get some Victorian stuff showing up in the archaeological record, which does have to come in and be treated the same as the very fun older stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm Catherine. I'm the archivist, which basically means I look after archive collections, uh, which we don't actually have very many true archive collections at the museum. Um, So I'm looking after our paper-based objects uh, and going through those and uh, appraising them, cataloguing them, seeing what we want to keep and um, yeah, stuff like that. We've had uh, a lot of questions in because we put out a call out last time um, for questions that you might want to know. Um, So thank you, everyone. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, we'll try and get through as many of them as possible. Um, Shall we start favourite object? We can do. I don't really have a favourite object. I don't wish to show favouritism to any of the items in the collection and I tend to get overexcited and enthusiastic about whichever object I'm cataloguing Um, and that becomes my favourite of the moment and I I move on to the next one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah we share an office I can confirm that that happens quite a lot. (laughs) Sorry. My favourite object which I have recently just picked I never used to have one but I suddenly remembered this great photograph we've got of the Stantonbury Unity football team, men's football team. And they're all like posing outside of a building, but they're in front of a window. And in in the window, there's a, like a little boy in the window looking out, photobombing the photo. <laughs> so I quite like that one. It's excellent. My favourite object uh, changes depending on what I'm currently angry about in any given monograph at the time. Um, but I agree. 
Uh, I mean, maybe maybe passionate about is more the correct term, but it, it kind of expresses itself as frustration when I'm reading things. <laughs> oh, um, then they've got it wrong. Yes. Oh, I see. My, I think if I had to pick a favourite object, I would have to pick the Mercury Altar from Emberton, which, one, it's fantastic. It's our only representation of a god in all of the archaeology collection that we hold. Oh, really? Uh, well, confirmed. Not my random theories that I come up with about Mithras or Bancroft. Um, and it's got these beautiful circles behind the Mercury face. And you can see that he's holding his cadgesses, his his swirling staff as well, and a little, potentially a money bag. So the relief on it is beautiful. And these circles actually relate back to potentially a Gallic god showing this amazing mix between... Uh, Mercury, who's very popular in Iron Age Britain, and potentially Gallic uh, versions of him coming over from France. And so you see this amazing trade uh, of Iron Age uh, religion coming in into the Roman period and kind of existing at the same time as the Romans are doing their thing. It's a very, it's a very cool little statue. I like yeah. it a lot. You don't think about like the trade in religions so much as actual trade of objects and things like that. That's yeah. quite mm. cool. Okay, what is the best bit of your job? For me, I still always get a thrill when I get to go through a door that the public can't go through. <laughs> <laughs> it's the simple things. It's going into the staff-only areas, into the stores, and seeing all the collections that nobody else gets to see. That's my favourite bit. I do also really like looking at racking that's full of brown cardboard boxes that all fit neatly on the shelves and all have beautiful labels on them. That is very but satisfying. I, it's, it's true. Yeah. Something aesthetically pleasing about it. Yes. Uh, the best bit of my job, like I really love helping people to find out what they need. Um, so if I get an inquiry through and I can answer that inquiry and then I know that somebody has kind of found what they needed to because I've helped them, that's my favourite bit of the job. Because it's like we do all this stuff and then if it actually gets used and is helpful, then yeah, that's the best bit for me. That's much more noble than my best bit. <laughs> Yours is very selfish. <laughs> it is. Uh, I think for me, I like the puzzle solving aspect of a lot of archaeology because um, you get something and you kind of look at it and you go, what is this? What is this supposed to be? And then you get the fun of almost doing like detective work research to work out what it is. And so sometimes that's in our collection, but also like like for you, Catherine, you get emails from members of the public who find something and they're like, can you tell me what this is, please? Do I need to bring it to you guys? Is it important? Which I love those emails, but you basically have a photo to go on yeah. and then you're just absolutely Sherlock Holmesing it as much as possible, <laughs> trying to find in your own collection or on databases online what on earth you're being sent a picture of. And that's really, really fun because... At the end of the day, you can never really know for sure, because if you've got an incomplete object, you'll never actually know what it's supposed to be. But trying to get a date for it, a time period, a use, that's really, really fun. And it's quite um, it's quite like a fun process as well to kind of go through. Yeah, I like the detective aspect as well. It's like yes. you go and looking for stuff and then you find it. And like, oh, yeah, this is the story. Yes, I have to say if I'm allowed another best bit, I'm really enjoying doing this podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's a really nice excuse to just sit and do research. And so much of what we do, we're just trying to list and catalogue and get stuff done. Don't get the excuse or the opportunity just to sit and research a subject in detail. Um, we get to for this. Yeah, it enhances our knowledge as well, doesn't it? 
Uh, next one is about our backgrounds, so kind of who we are, where we come from. All right, I'll go first on this one. Um, I did my undergraduate degree in archaeology and classical languages, which is a very fancy way of being for saying that I cried over ancient Greek for seven years. Um, it's a horrible language. <laughs> Latin is way more fun. Take Latin instead. <laughs> That's a good piece of advice there. <laughs> Top tip. Um, and then I did my master's in conservation because I realized while well, archaeology is great fun and I really enjoyed digging, what I actually enjoyed was getting to work with objects. And so I thought, okay, where can I go do an MA that would give me that specific training? Uh, so I went to, went, came back to England to do that and then got a job as a field archaeologist, which happened to be in Milton Keynes. And then I happened to be told about the Milton Keynes Museum and uh, started volunteering here and sending Sarah very annoying emails every Friday after I'd finished doing whatever conservation I was doing and giving her a write-up of them. <laughs> I don't remember them being very annoying. Oh, I'm glad they weren't annoying. <laughs> they definitely were like full write-ups of what I'd done that afternoon, though. <laughs> because no one was in the museum when I was volunteering. It was Friday and it was yes. dead. So We I were thought... still at home chase on a Friday when you started. Yeah, so I thought I should give an update so I wasn't just, you know, hanging around doing whatever. Um, and then I was very lucky to get the job as the curator and conservator. It was good timing, wasn't it? Really. We were getting really. all the archaeology back from back. So, um, so yeah, I, if you don't know by now, I'm local. I've been in Milton Keynes for the last over 30 years. Um, and I did an undergrad degree in information and library management, where I realised I didn't want to be a librarian, even though they are super people. Um, <laughs> I found out about archives um, and then I worked as an archive assistant and volunteered as an archive assistant at various places and got a job at the London School of Economics uh, where they gave me lots of training and I also did the master's um, distance learning with Dundee University so that was archives and records management and when I was finishing that I was quite lucky as well because um, the jobs came up in Milton Keynes that I'm sort of doing now. So it was really good timing that I was just getting qualified and the jobs came up. So I was like, yeah, I'll go back to Milton Keynes and be an archivist in Milton Keynes. Um, this is why I'm going to show my age and that I'm so much older than you two. Not that um, much older. <laughs> well, OK, I've had a longer and more varied career, I guess. I started <laughs> working in museums after my GCSE, so when I was 16, worked in my local museum and school holidays and during A-levels we could work on Wednesday afternoons. Then went off to uni and did archaeological sciences, which was a sandwich course, so I got to spend a year working in museums in my third year. Worked in an agricultural museum and with archaeology. Leaving uni, I then volunteered at a local museum again before getting my first proper paid job in a museum mm -hmm. at the Adjutant's General Corps Museum in Winchester. I started on the Monday. The Queen opened the museum on the Friday. Very exciting. I got to hold the door open for her. <laughs> did she say thank you? I'm not sure that she did. But I'm sure she was just so excited to come and look around the museum. <laughs> um, from there, I moved on to Cornwall, where I worked with archaeology. And then I changed my job slightly and worked with all the little museums in Cornwall, helping them catalogue their collections. Um, before moving up to the northwest where I helped all the museums across the Northwest with their collections, care and cataloguing and accreditation and things like that. I basically spent three, four years being paid to go and visit museums, 
was great. Living the dream. You're so yeah. fancy. I know. Then I moved back down to Hampshire to Winchester for a year where I sadly closed down a museum mm. on Red Cross history. But that was very interesting. I learned a lot about Red Cross and changes in their uniform over time. <laughs> and then I moved to Milton Keynes um, and worked on a heritage lottery project, which is when I first started working with, working with Kathleen. And your life improved immensely. Um, it certainly did. <laughs> And I've not been able to shake you off ever since. It's been fun and games it ever has since. Been. Yes. <laughs> and as that project was coming to an end, I got offered the job in Milton Keynes Museum. And I've been here four years now, I think it is, isn't it? Yes, 2017 we started. Yes. The year Milton Keynes turned 50. That's the only way I remember yes. it. Yes. <laughs> Especially with these past two years, everything's just blurred. What is the oldest object we have and the youngest object we have? Well, oldest is over to you, Tabby. Yes, the oldest object in the collection is the ichthyosaur fossil, which is currently on display at the Milton Keynes Library. And that is 250 million years old. That is really old. Give or take. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's Give or take. too big a number to be able to actually comprehend. <laughs> Oh my god. Youngest? Youngest, I would say we recently, a couple of months ago, took in a spin e-scooter. Oh, is that one of the ones you can rent? Yes, yes. They very, very kindly donated one to the museum. A broken one, though? It doesn't, well, I suppose, yes, but we didn't want one that worked. Because if it works, then we have to be able to maintain it and keep it working. But then we could also ride it. No, because it's in the collection, so no... No riding the e-scooter. <laughs> Next question. Which objects are difficult to look after? So for the archaeology, the answer to that is anything made of iron. So when iron objects go into the ground, uh, the corrosion products expand and basically trap dirt and soil and vegetation and literally anything else around it and concrete it to the iron object. So when you excavate something archaeological that's iron, you don't excavate an object, you excavate a lump of dirt with an object inside of it that you can only tell it's there because you end up with kind of orange dust kind of in with the dirt. So what you then have to do is you have to x-ray it and then you have to blast the concretion off of the object with a sandblaster. That sounds like fun. It does sound like fun. super fun. It's also super stressful because obviously if you use too much force, you will just destroy the object inside. Mm -hmm. But even when the object has been removed from the concretion, uh, iron corrosion is extremely volatile, which means the slightest bit of moisture and it will just restart corroding. And obviously iron corrosion makes your hands look like you've been eating too many Cheetos and it (laughs) destroys the object. So iron has to be stored at less than 20% humidity. The problem with this is that there are actually no strips of humidity indicator that will actually correctly show you if it's below 20%. So you just have to put in silica gel and pray that it's 20% and then monitor an object. So it is definitely not one of those ones that you can clean database and leave it alone. You have to always monitor it yearly to make sure that it's okay. It needs a lot of love and attention. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And do we now have the like machines and stuff to do all that work? We do have the x-ray machine. It needs to be set up and we need a digital processor to make it more usable. We do not yet have an air abrasion unit to be able to sandblast our iron, but hopefully at some point we will be able to get the rest of it so we can 
look after all of our iron work beautifully. Sadly, despite being really good all last year, Santa did not bring us an aerobation unit for Christmas. No, he didn't. It was very sad. It was the only thing on my list. <laughs> Don't ask for much, do you? <laughs> no. For me, um, large objects are, or large pieces of paper are really difficult to look after. So you've got your bog standard like A4, great, we'll put it in a box and then maybe in a file in a box or whatever. Um, but if it's A2, A1, A0, that's a bit more of a problem. It's just like unwieldy and you need like bespoke storage and it's just a bit of a bit of a bother really but obviously we still love them just the same (laughs) do do the a numbers go into the negatives can you have a size bigger than a zero i would imagine so but i i don't know yes you must be able to get bigger pieces of paper than a zero but i don't know so is it a negative one or do you just start saying it's x by x that's a good question i don't know luckily i've never come across anything bigger than a (laughs) zero because i would probably have a breakdown. <laughs> I also don't like big things like that, which is why I can never get them to roll up neatly, which is generally why if I unroll something, I then call you and get you to roll it up neatly afterwards. Yeah. And the thing about large pieces of paper is, ideally, they should be kept flat. But in terms of space, it's you're, you want to roll them up because you can fit more in, but... Ideally, they should be kept flat, which is also... What exhibition would you most like to do and why? Shall I go first? Because you two look like you're still thinking. I've always wanted to do an exhibition. I'm not entirely certain how serious I am on this, on the myths and legends of Milton Keynes. When I first came down, people were always telling me things about Milton Keynes that weren't always, strictly speaking, true, like tea bags were invented in Milton Keynes and things like this, and there seems to be a lot of stories around Milton Keynes that might be true or have their roots in truth but aren't quite, strictly speaking, factual. It's like that oral history tradition, isn't it, where things kind of evolve over time. And I thought an exhibition on that would be fun. I did once suggest we do it for April Fool's Day, but it seems a lot of effort to do an exhibition for one day. We'll make April April Fool's Month. Yes, put it on for that. And just put every rumour that I've ever been told about Martin Keynes in as fact. <laughs> I like it. But on a more serious note, I'd quite like to do an exhibition on unbuilt Martin Keynes. I think that would be fun. And with some of the architectural models that we've got in the collection, or CDC have in their collection that we look after for them, um, get those out on display and talk about the things that could have been built on Martin Keynes but never were. Yeah, it's an interesting topic. There's so much that they planned or designed that just never happened. So yeah, it's an interesting topic. Well, I actually remembered my serious answer for this while I was thinking of my joke answer, because my joke answer is the the amazing exhibit, the Etruscans of Milton Keynes, which the joke is that there are no Etruscans in Milton Keynes, but that a lot of our archeology span is based on something in the Roman period, which is based on something from the Etruscan period. Um, the actual serious one that I was, I drafted, but just started thinking about it a while ago and I completely forgot about it up until now, is I would love to do um, an LGBTQIA plus in archaeology display. Mm. So um, this is something places like the British Museum and um, the, univer- the um, museums in Cambridge have done, like an LGBT trail through history. But um, just 
really looking at it as kind of a daily life thing because obviously when you go to the trail in the BM you're looking at Hadrian and Antinous and all of these quite high status Romans and Greeks uh, who are in the the LGBT category but I'd actually like to look at it on a day-to-day uh, kind of thing is how, how uh, evidence we have for people who are LGBTQIA plus in just the archaeology we have of the daily life going through history and I don't know how feasible it is with the archaeology we have at the museum but I think it would be quite a cool exhibit to do yeah, yeah definitely that sounds good Catherine I don't have an answer <laughs> <laughs> you can just help us with ours exactly I'm very good at doing what I'm told <laughs> So what is the difference between a curator and an archivist? Interesting question. Okay, so as an archivist, I would say that I would facilitate access um, to my collections. So I look after them, um, I'll promote them, and I will let you come and look at them, if you're good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then the researcher or the person who's coming and doing the research, they will look at stuff themselves and they will interpret what they're looking at for themselves. Whereas my impression of a curator is someone who looks after their collections and then puts them on display. So they choose what people get to see and they will write all the captions. So they will choose how the object is interpreted. But I don't know if you guys agree. Um, kinda, maybe. I feel like a curator does what an archivist does, but also helps put things on display. But so we get researchers in to look at the archaeology and they'll get given the boxes or shown the boxes and they research them and put their own interpretation on them. We don't say you can only come and look at Bradwell Abbey collection if you look at it from this point of view. I think it does come down to the the specialist knowledge piece, right? I think... um traditionally, not saying I agree with it, but traditionally there's an expectation of curators to be curating collections which either encompass or contain their specific research area. And so they are um, tasked with researching and then public, and then publicizing. What's the word for making a publication? Publishing. (laughs) Publishing, thank you. pieces based on those objects specifically because if you look at the curator training it's there's always a piece of it that encourages you to already have that specialized field and then the curator training is to enhance that almost i'm not i don't agree with it as a distinction but i think if you tried to piece them apart i think that's where the qualification distinguishes itself Mm. but i don't know if i agree Possibly. I don't know how much research and publication many curators get to do these days. I mean, you also have keepers, and I've never known what the difference is between a keeper and a curator, or whether it's just what that institution wants to call their curator. Mm. And I suppose as an archivist, I do, or I would do uh, publications as well. You know, I I could write articles and things like that, Um, but I could look after any archive collection. I don't specifically need to know about the organization or the individual but you get to know that organizational individual through looking after that collection so the specialist knowledge of it helps but you could also do an adequate job without that specialist knowledge yeah i don't think i could curate anything that wasn't archaeology yeah because i wouldn't know what to do with it 
like even even trying to catalog it because there's just a, a level of understanding that I wouldn't that I feel like I wouldn't have in regards to even trying to itemize it and put it in an order if that makes sense I don't, I don't know yeah that does make sense <laughs> hmm. Maybe we just all do the same job and we're... I think we do. I mean, I don't have curator in my title and I've never had curator in my title. I suppose the closest has been curatorial assistant, but I kind of do mostly what a curator does, I think. I mean, you're an officer, so when the zombies attack, you've got the highest military rank. Yes, so you will all have to do what I say. <laughs> Good. Because I don't know how to deal with zombies. <laughs> Protect me, the highest ranking officer. <laughs> So, which superpower would be most useful for your job at the museum? Ooh, Catherine, do you have one? I was thinking about this earlier, and I thought, all of them. Yes. <laughs> I was thinking super strength would be good, because archive Very boxes much. are heavy, and I carry stuff between the cellar and the new store all the time, which is a bit of a, bit of a trek. <laughs> but then... <laughs> If you're thinking about like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be carrying too many archive boxes at one time because it's not good in case I drop them, maybe I don't need super strength. So maybe flying would be good because then I can get between places quite quickly. And you could fly up to the highest racking. Mm, you wouldn't need yes, ladders. Yes, don't need ladders. Maybe flying. Or x-ray vision would be good because then I could see what was in the boxes without opening them, yep. which is useful sometimes. We wouldn't need our x-ray machine anymore because you could just look at all the objects yeah. and tell us. So, yes, between those three, I think flying, I'd enjoy it anyway. I think telekinesis, because yeah. then I can move the big heavy objects just with the power of my mind, not actually having to lift them up. That's genius. If it's on a top shelf, I can get it down. Uh, yeah. I, I was originally thinking extendable arms and legs, so I can just go up to the top shelf, kind of go-go gadget type. I was thinking stretch Armstrong. <laughs> Mr. Fantastic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Any and all of those, but actually telekinesis. And I'm inherently lazy, so telekinesis works towards that. I can just sit in my office. I don't actually have to go into the very cold LEDB. I can do it all from the comfort of my desk. Yeah. Telekinesis was my answer too. Oh no, Sarah stole it. No, no, it's, it's fine, it's fine. Because then I'm doing conservation and uh, Sarah's seen this happen. She walks in and I'm holding this pot together from eight different angles. If I had telekinesis, I could just... Hold the pot together and then glue the pieces. And then not freeze yes. up your hands. Freeze up my hands. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I asked her to help me move something the other day and she couldn't because she was stuck to a pot. Yeah. Not <laughs> literally stuck to a pot. Because this one, the the side was too heavy and so it was just like this in the store. It's cradling this so vessel. I'm having a little hug in the oh. store. See, that's the difference between archivists and curators. I don't hug my stuff. You don't hug your objects. <laughs> no. Well, how do they know that they're loved? <laughs> They don't. <laughs> Zombies start attacking the museum. Oh my goodness. What object from the collections do you choose to fight them off with? I've got an answer for this. Okay. I would not choose an item from the collections. I would just hide behind Tabitha. <laughs> <laughs> I like that answer. I second it. <laughs> I'm really confident that Tabitha would fight off the zombies. Yes, me too. I have put a lot of thought into how to survive a zombie apocalypse. I thought you might have done. Um, well, mostly because when I was in high school, people would always buy me like zombie survival handbooks because they thought that was the kind of person I was. I'm actually terrified of zombies and I hate them. Oh, no. um, so not great gifts, but we go with it anyway. Um, the actual answer is to wear a scuba suit 
because zombies, unless you're dealing with like special fancy superpowered zombies, zombies have the same bite strength as a regular human and you can't bite through 7 mil of neoprene. So if you have neoprene on, you can't get bitten. We don't, as far as I'm aware, have any in the collection. Ah, yes, but I've been bringing one in every day in my bag. Okay, um, no, no. Um, see, <laughs> Does a Busby suit work as well? I don't think so, because it's not neoprene. It would make you more visible. The actual answer is to get one of the vehicles from the Hall of Transport and then run the zombies over, because same logic. If you can run over a person, you can run over a zombie. That sounds sensible. Yeah, I was thinking something big and heavy and pokey. Keep them at a distance like a pitchfork or something. We've got lots of those, but they are on the top shelf in the LEDB. Not ideal. But no. with the telekinesis problem Well, with solved. my telekinesis, I can just keep turning the zombies around every time they run towards me. <laughs> That's also true. Do Probably. we have any swords? We do. We have the... Is it the police sword? Yes. But it's not sharp. No. It's an ornamental weapon. You could probably still do some damage if you hit them hard enough. Oh, so again, you have to kind of cut off the head, don't you? Depends on the type of zombie. Yeah. I didn't know there was different types of zombies. I, I can tell you all about the different types of zombies from my zombie survival <laughs> guides. But no, that sword wouldn't do any damage regardless of how strong you swung it. It's got absolutely no edge to it at all. Okay. But is it not heavy enough that you could at least poke them in the eye? I mean, if you poked them in the eye and destroyed the brain, would that not help? Well, I don't know. I mean, you'd have to have pretty good aim yeah that, how's your foil it, it's probably rusty but i reckon no it... no your foil aim yeah oh, okay. but my <laughs> <laughs> you the foil was rusty no no foil's not rusty but i'm a bit rusty because i haven't fenced in a while but yeah same principle yeah i've not thought about this a lot but i in terms of how to fight off a zombie but i have thought a lot that if there was some kind of apocalypse i would be breaking into my local museum to steal things because <laughs> if you go to a back to basics they always seem to you don't have electricity anymore power you'll have to go back to hand tools where would you go but your local museum because it's full of hand tools yeah and we've got the forge here we've got forge here yep we've got everything that we would need to survive once all the zombies have gone we're rebuilding civilization <laughs> once toby's fought them all off and killed them all <laughs> Come back to Milton Keynes Museum and restart again. Wait a second, I didn't sign up to kill all the zombies. <laughs> Every single one of them. Yeah. Okay, fine. You didn't have to sign up, we volunteered you. Oh, great. <laughs> what is the one object you would love to have in the collection? For me, it's one of the little delivery robots. I knew so you were going to say they that. If they're listening, they've not responded to any of my emails. If you're listening and you work for them, please can I have one? Dear Starship Robots. Yes. Can I have one of your robots, please? I'm obsessed with those robots. I love them. They make my day. Should we just get a delivery to the museum and keep it? I have considered this, yes. Especially at the moment, because they're playing Christmas songs. Are they? Oh, now I want one even more. We got one delivered um, to my friend's house the other day, and it played last Christmas. We had a little dance in the street. <laughs> I would love to have an Etruscan object in the collection. Anyone in particular? It, it doesn't matter. I just want something I can be like, look, this is Etruscan. And then people will nod and be like, okay, that's nice. <laughs> Tabitha does love the Etruscan. She does, yes. I would like to have... I don't know, we might already have one. Um, but I like one of those free tree vouchers they were giving out when uh, Milton Keynes was... Everybody was first moving to Milton Keynes. You got a free tree voucher. You could then go and choose a tree and plant it in your garden. 
I'd like one of those. That's awesome. Yeah. We were talking about that last week in a meeting. Oh. But I don't know if we have one in the collection. So if anybody listening has one in the collection, feel free to donate it to us. Yeah, I'd like that. I quite like, as well, the point pyramid. They're going to knock down the point. Just have the red <gasps> bit that lights up that went that. over the site of the museum. When I did my MA, my first essay, I was writing a letter to the director of a museum about an object you think that they should have. And that's what I picked for my essay. It is iconic. It is iconic. And it'll be so cool to light it up and then you'll be able to see the museum. Yes. Good. I like that. Okay. What tasks are the one you look most forward to doing and least forward to doing? I really like cataloguing photographs, especially if I know what they are. <laughs> that yes. does help. Yes. It's a bit soul destroying if you don't know what any of the photographs are. Yeah, I just like describing them and just I just like it. <laughs> I'm the same, not necessarily photographs, just anything. I really like cataloguing and just getting a box of something and going through and looking at it and researching it and looking at it in great detail, measuring it, trying to find all the little bits and things. It's very satisfying. It is very satisfying. And then knowing that you will then be able to find that again in yes. the future. Yeah. Having it on the catalogue system, on the computer, with a photograph, and it's all just there. Yeah. I think the most satisfying task, and the most the one I most look forward to, is when I get to conserve a ceramic vessel, because it's like a 3D puzzle. I really like puzzles. So there's something just very cathartic about taking all the pieces out and just kind of like rejigging them around until you find the joins, and then just sitting there putting the glue on, them together all fits nicely fits nicely giving yeah. it a hug giving it a hug <laughs> let it know sure, it's loved yeah just make sure the glue really stays it's really really satisfying sounds good i least look forward to going into the cellar <laughs> just because it's cold and i don't like to be cold the scares are a bit scary no <laughs> the scares are a bit scary going down them they're very concrete i always concerned if i'm going to trip if you're carrying a box, I find that a bit scary. Yeah, there's danger. Yes. There's mild peril involved. <laughs> Very mild. But mine is probably saying no to people when they've offered us something. Mm. It's an important part of my job because we can't take everything. But I don't like saying no to people. Mine is pest traps. I really hate having to go around and pick up all the pest traps and put new ones down. Not because of the traps themselves. I think it's really fun to pick them up and be like, oh, let's do bug identification. But the fact that they're never where I left them. (laughs) And so you walk into a room, I look at my map and I go to exactly where it's listed on my map and then it's not there. And then I have to spend another 10 minutes looking around the rest of the room being like, where did the pest trap go? That's very frustrating. It makes a task that should be like half an hour. (laughs) Take like an hour and a half. Yeah. We used to have that occasionally at Home Chase, but that was just because a big spider had wandered into it and just got one leg stuck and then dragged the pest trap along behind it. It was terrifying. Because, <laughs> like, I'd walked past it and I'd seen it and I'd gone, oh, that's a huge spider. And then it kind of moved a little bit, so I ran away. And then the next time we walked past it, it was in the middle of the floor. Yeah. Like super strength spider legs. Have you seen the huge spiders that we had in the store after lockdown? No. Because normally, because I vacuum, we don't get a lot of spiders in the store. But after lockdown, when I came in, 
or these massive hairy ones as well like not even the ones that have like the big legs and a tiny body like mm. huge ones darting and you turn the light on and you'd see a bunch of them just scuttle away that's terrifying yeah it was it was not great and i'd like move boxes and i'd obviously scare them they'd scare me and we'd both look at each other and leave <laughs> it's an interesting interesting time had a lot of conversations with spiders I'm not sure what's scarier, the ghosts in the store or the spiders. Definitely in the, store. the spiders. The ghosts are helpful. Yes. Well, that's what you two say, but I don't think they are. They've not well, helped me. Have you asked them to help you? Yeah, I did the other day. Got no help at all. Well, maybe they haven't gotten yeah. around to it yet. You've just been on holiday for a week. They might have answered your question. Have you been in the store yet today? No, that's true. Well, there you go. So, if you could have a museum pet, what would it be and why? A dog because they're cute. A type, specific nice type of dog? Fabric. Nah, just any dog. Okay. Would it be one that would just curl up under your desk and go to sleep on your feet kind of dog? Or one that you would train to fetch and carry archival documents? No! <laughs> or you'd hitch out to a little trolley if you want something like a big St. Bernard. But you could have with a, a cart behind it that would pull your boxes yes. to the store for you. I want a St. Bernard to pull my boxes. <laughs> there you go. Done. End of discussion. I was thinking cat, because then if we get any mice or rats on site, it could deal with those. That's very sensible. Yes. I would also quite like a shire horse and some goats, but I don't know if they're counted as pets. Is that for any particular reason? We've got an agricultural element to the museum, and I love shire horses. They've got big fluffy feet. And sheep. I like goats. Goats are more fun than sheep. I do love goats. Baby goats. Baby goats. And then they grow into normal goats and then everyone's happy. So counter-counter proposal, (laughs) though I do think a museum cat is a very legitimate thing. And it has been done in some museums and some libraries have um, library cats. But, and hear me out. Okay. Bats. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yes, it was very, very stereotyping for me. But bats are really good for the environment. And we have bees because we have the apiary. So bats are actually the second biggest pollinator and they are endangered. So it'd be really good to have a place for a colony of bats. And also they eat all the bugs. Bats can eat three times their weight in bugs every day. They would set off the alarms though at night when they're flying around the galleries. Tabitha would take them home with her. But do they not come out at night and eat the bugs at night? Yeah, they do eat the bugs at night. Not to make you jealous, but we've got bats at Bradwell Abbey. Well, we do have bats here, but they're outside. Oh, you want like indoor like bats? Indoor bats. Okay. Would they not defecate on the collection? I mean, that's not saying that cats and dogs wouldn't either. You've got to train them. I'm sure we can train the bats as easy as we can train a cat or a dog. Let's just turn this place back into a farm. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the easiest yeah. solution. Done. Decision made. <laughs> Sorted. What is the worst thing about your job? Dump and runs for me when people bring an object into the museum that they want to donate, possibly or possibly lend or possibly want us just to look at it, but leave without any kind of name or contact details or what it is or why they brought it in. And then I'm just left with a random object. That's my worst thing. Yeah, that is really annoying, isn't it? Because then you just can't do anything with it. No. Because legally speaking, we have no idea what that person's intention was. So we don't know if it's ours or not. So we therefore have to keep it just in case they ever meant it as a loan and they come back for it in two, five, twenty, fifty years time. Yeah, don't do that. 
please don't do that. Please write a note with it, with your name and your contact details. I think the worst thing about my job is the fact that I can't turn the heating up in the new store. (laughs) (laughs) So I have to keep the heating at 20 degrees so that it keeps a stable humidity and also isn't too high to encourage woodworm and other pests to thrive in it. But I'm really cold all the time and I've gone through three space heaters this winter alone. No way. Yeah, if you're wondering why the space heaters keep disappearing to I keep using them and breaking them. Um, so that is the worst part of my job, the environmental <laughs> conditions that I have to maintain and that were set by me. <laughs> Nobody's blame but yourself. I 100% take the blame and I 100% hate myself for it. <laughs> it's got to be done. Yeah. Do archaeologists keep everything they dig up? And if not, how do you decide what to keep? So there's kind of three stages to working out what to keep. Um, the first thing is the stage that's done on excavation. So you excavate and you keep everything you find in the layer that you've excavated. And then it goes to finds processing. And then that's when you take out stones or things that are not from the uh, the time period that you're looking for. So oftentimes if you're if you're charged with digging a Roman site and you're getting a lot of post-medieval stuff, you just be like, okay, we record the post-medieval stuff. It's not important. Get rid of it. Um, if you're digging like a site for like a villa, for instance, the building material, um, you'll keep important pieces of building material, but no one wants 20 boxes of brick or tile deposited in their museum. Um, and so what you'll often do is again, record it, weigh it, and then dispose of it at that stage. Um, so that's kind of the first disposals of what you keep and then what you don't keep. And then when it's going to the museum, uh, the uh, most archaeological units will then do a second processing. So they've gone through everything that's now been cleaned to determine what's important to keep and what's not. So at that point, you know, if you're digging on farmland and you've got 18 boxes of sheep bone, what's unstratified, what's actually from an archaeological layer. If it's just stuff coming up from the topsoil, it's not archaeology. Get rid of it at that point. And then once it comes to a museum, the museum can then do go through their disposals policy and see if there's anything within the collection that they have that they think isn't necessary to keep. But most of the time, it's the first two stages that are important. And that's just getting rid of bulk stuff that isn't relevant to the actual site and isn't giving you any more information. Okay. And that's the key thing is it's about does that piece, does that object, does that thing that you're keeping have any information that's important to know from it? So if you've got sheep bone from a Roman pit, that's important. It tells you that the Romans put the sheep bone in that pit. If you've got sheep bone from a context that uh, it's been plowed, so it's not really a, a firm context anymore, you might not want to keep that because it doesn't really tell you anything. Could be modern, could be Roman. You've got no way of knowing. Okay. So if you're digging a Roman site, or what you think is a Roman site, and you find like medieval stuff, mm-hmm. if it's important medieval stuff, you will keep that even though you're digging for a Roman site? It, it depends on the site and it also depends on the country. Like in some countries it's, okay, no, we are specifically looking for the Roman excavation of this. So anything else gets recorded but not kept. But um, on excavations I've done in the UK, you keep everything because you're not specifically looking for one context or another. You're just digging and mm-hmm. then recording what you find as you go and then the interpretation's done after. But if you had a site that you knew was a Roman villa and you're specifically looking for the Roman stuff, then you might treat it differently because it's what archive do you want to produce at the end? What are you handing to a museum and saying, this is relevant to what we set out to do? 
So the, the answer is it depends, but it's it really is about what is giving you information that's important. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Well, thank you very much. That's all our questions. So thank you for sending them in. Um, if you have any more questions, do feel free to send them in and maybe we can do another podcast like this again in the future. It was fun. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed it. That's it for this episode. If you've got an idea for a future topic you'd like us to feature, then get in touch with us via social media. We're at MK Museum on Twitter and Facebook and at Milton Keynes Museum on Instagram. Also, check out our website, miltonkeensmuseum.org.uk.